So today on the podcast, we get to do a Q&R question and response episode. We're going to do questions that are a part of the Paradigm series. So we're going to look at questions for the first half of this series, the first half of the of the pillars. And with me is Tim Mackey and Chris Quinn. Good morning. Hello. So we're going to jump into these questions. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. All right. Question number one is from Grant in Texas. Hello, I'm Grant from Denton, Texas. John, in episode one of this series, you shared your story of struggling with a quiet time Bible study paradigm. Every part of this story rung so true to my experience, so I was disappointed that it ended with you as a post-Bible Christian. Can you continue telling this story? What advice would you give to someone who is struggling with this paradigm? Do you maintain something like a quiet time Bible study now? If so, how has it evolved and matured? And if not, what have you replaced it with? Thanks so much. All right. Yeah. Getting mm-hmm. getting personal right mm-hmm. off the bat. Yeah. What a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah thanks for your interest, Grant. Well, this project actually was probably an outflow of that journey. Mm-hmm. I don't like to give up on things <laughs> and um, stubborn that way. And so I, I continued to like to talk about the Bible and mm-hmm. try to understand it, even though I was really frustrated with reading it. And mm-hmm. one of the people that I got to do that with, with was you, Tim. Mm-hmm. And that was always a really rewarding experience. And still always really believed that the ideas in the Bible were really important. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I held that intention mm-hmm. with like, eh, mm. Bible's not important in my life anymore, mm-hmm. but the ideas in the Bible are important. Yeah, that's interesting. Is, is that what you meant by post-Bible Christian, that uh, the Bible's not that important in my daily life anymore? Yeah, for me, I don't need the Bible. I could follow Jesus. But there was still this sense of like, you got to know the right answers though. Mm-hmm. You got to know the right things. Yeah, there's some foundational things that you think are good and beautiful or true. Yeah. But the way the Bible tries to tell me that is frustrating and so yeah. too hard. And other people seem to get it. And so maybe wow. I could just talk to those people. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they can explain it to me. Yeah, sure. And so, huh. you know, the the first idea of this project was just a theology YouTube channel, mm-hmm. just to talk with scholars mm-hmm. and try to understand how they understand the Bible mm-hmm. and then explain that to others. Mm-hmm. Actually, have we told that story on the know. podcast? <laughs> the first conversation we had about the idea of doing this was you coming to me with an idea of a YouTube channel with a sarcastic title yeah, <laughs> called Theology it? is Boring. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I was bored. <laughs> but I knew that it, yeah. I shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And so, but then you, Tim, were like, well, well, look, I have a lot of content we can make videos about. Mm. And this one you presented mm. like the list of theme videos. Mm. Yeah. And so we don't need to go and interview people. Let's just make this content. Mm-hmm. And that and then we were off to the races. Yep. And uh, you focused me on, I'd been very shaped by systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that was the lens by which I was trying to understand the Bible. Where you take a question and then you approach the Bible with that question to try to answer it. Right. And then try to um, systematize, create a, create a very clean theological grid mm-hmm. by which I can understand everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... I was given that grid and then I was told to go and read the Bible and understand the Bible through that grid. And that it just didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> I just totally. couldn't I couldn't make the two work together. Yeah. yeah. And only people that could 
seemed to to have a knack for the Bible that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. But then you really recentered me on biblical theology, which is a, a different perspective of let's come to the Bible and try to engage the Bible through its own texture, its own grain. What are the questions it's asking? Yeah, or addressing. Or addressing. Yeah, maybe are questions we've never thought to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's been really rewarding. Mm-hmm. In terms of like a quiet time, I, I have given up on that. I'm really bad at any sort of routine, actually. It's my mm. personality. Mm. Like I, I've mm. actually, I've wondered before, I don't think I have any routines in my life. <laughs> that's okay, John. <laughs> that's that's impossible. I, don't you think it's impossible? Do you brush your teeth every day? Don't yeah. answer that. Don't, don't answer. Oh, dang. <laughs> you eat every day. Uh, yeah. Eventually. <laughs> Eventually I'll eat during the day. Some days you'll get to work and we'll be eating lunch. I will brush my teeth every day, but but sometimes I won't brush my teeth before I go to bed and it annoys my wife so much. <laughs> oh, she hates it. Oh, man. Okay, okay. I'm so just, yeah. on the scale of routines, yeah. you are more on the less planned. So, yeah, so this is a good question because mm. probably a lot of people are like that or for whatever reason or another mm-hmm. don't resonate with this disciplined quiet time yeah. of reading scripture so yeah and so i've i've just given myself a pass like mm-hmm. that's okay that doesn't have to be my ideal really with anything mm-hmm. that requires like a routine the way i get things done is i just i go with my energy yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so it's like if i have energy for it that day mm-hmm. i do it there's a flaw in that <laughs> when you're feeling down uh, for long stretches. Another little hack is when um, when you're procrastinating on something, make yourself do something else that you would otherwise be procrastinating on. That's just a little less intense. <laughs> so like, what's the minimum amount of thing that I do have energy for that I can, that I can do? Anyways, yeah. when I read the Bible, it's not every day. Um, I try to read in larger larger chunks like read a whole mm-hmm. letter of paul all at once and try not to understand every line that's where mm-hmm. i always got hung up mm-hmm. is i yeah. would try to understand like every single line what did he mean by that what do you mean by that and then yeah. i'm down a rabbit hole and i'm confused and i'm frustrated and so being okay that i'm going to have a lot of questions and then having a community of people that i can um read the bible with mm-hmm. you too starting to do that with my family as well mm-hmm. we're just reading cool. the bible together mm-hmm. so those are yeah those are the new habits and well, one of the goals we have at Bible Project is to create Bible nerds, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, lifelong defined as yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, lifelong meditators of Scripture. Yep. Yeah, people who will are dedicated to like kind of a intense, mm. maybe slightly obsessive, like <laughs> just I'm uh, this book is a huge part of my life. Mm. Or from another angle, people who are just become so enamored mm. with. And curious and enamored, curious yeah. about mm-hmm. what's in the Bible because they find it beautiful, yeah, yeah, and exciting, yeah, and that curiosity and excitement generates its own momentum for mm-hmm. ha- new habits and so on. Yeah. So, yeah. I think once you get there, if that becomes you, and this might be controversial, but I don't think every mm. follower of Jesus mm. is necessarily going to be like a badge wearing Bible nerd. Totally. Mm. Yeah. There's other work to be done in mm-hmm. the kingdom of God. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's an important point, though. Yeah. And and there is, I think, a baseline to understand who Jesus is and follow him. Yeah. You at least need to be really familiar with his life and teachings and like what yeah. he did. And then to make sense of him and w- why you, you know, follow him and think you do what you do about him means some wider story. But it doesn't mean, yeah, that everybody's going to have the same degree of depth yeah. uh, and time commitment into understanding the Bible. And that's it's called the body of Christ. Yeah. You know, 
some are different limbs and different parts and that's how the whole thing works together. Yeah. I think one of the goals for my life is to know God, to love God and to help others know and love him more mm -hmm. too. I think that's a pretty mm. general goal that <laughs> most Christians could adopt. And that doesn't mean you have to be a Bible nerd. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to do a quiet time. It means you value knowing who God is. And, and that does mean familiarity with the biblical story to some extent. But it also means finding ways to connect with him that don't have to just be reading scripture. It could yeah. be like for me, I love prayer walks. It's really hard for me to sit down and just mm -hmm. focus. Mm -hmm. But I love like going on a walk and mm -hmm. praying or thinking or reflecting with a friend about scripture or yeah, I just I don't think it has to look the same for everyone. But knowing God and loving God, receiving his love, I think is a really important part mm -hmm. of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Yeah, so when you become a Bible nerd, if you want to like own that, and hopefully there's a lot of people listening to this or people part of the project or just followers of Jesus who are like, yeah, I want the Bible to be, I want, I, I want to dive in deep. I think it manifests in different ways. For me, I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to be the guy who's going to learn Greek and Hebrew and go to school. But I think that the Bible as literary art does come to life and be, begin to shape me. Mm. while in this community of people who mm. there's some people who who have done that and so that's that's really exciting so i would call like i actually now feel like i've gone from being a post bible christian to someone who'd say yeah i i want the bible to be one of the <laughs> one of the biggest passions mm. of my life mm. and have a vision for that <laughs> and so that doesn't mean though that i'm going to le learn greek and hebrew or mm -hmm. have a quiet time every day yeah. but reading long stretches mm. and um uh and reading community mm. yep our next question is from Emily in Kansas. This question comes from one of the first episodes because <laughs> I don't remember being in this conversation. So, <laughs> Hi, Tim and John. My name is Emily and I'm from Kansas City. Two questions. How would you describe the difference between the scriptures being inspired versus inerrant to someone who comes from a tradition that emphasizes inerrancy? Also, how do inspired scriptures differ from other writings where people are reflecting on God and life? For example, how do poets today who are contemplating God as they write differ from the biblical author's inspiration, and what role does this play when considering which writings to view as most important for gaining insight into God's intentions? Thank you. Such a good question. So there's so many good yeah. questions yeah. Pack, packed in there. Uh, just always as a note, there's been so many questions sent in uh, over the last few weeks. And so Emily's question is a great summary of what a lot of a lot of people mm -hmm. were, were asking. Um, so good job, Emily. You put the, what do you say? You put the. Mm, your finger on you it. You put your finger on, on the it. pulse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, okay, maybe some shorthand definition. So inspired is a term, it's an English word that's a translation. One way to translate this term that Paul uses in his um, uh, in the second letter to Timothy, mm -hmm. where he says all scripture uh, is theonoustos in Greek, um, God-spirited or God-breathed. So we had a whole conversation about that earlier on. So it's important when Paul's writing that, he's thinking primarily of the Hebrew Bible or most likely the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible because he's talking about the Bible that Timothy grew up reading with his mom and his grandma. Yeah. And, or at least hearing, you know, at a synagogue and church. And that's significant because it means it wasn't just those original words in the original language, but also translations of it that are Correct. inspired. Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's right. In other words, yeah, Paul the Apostle can imagine the, the voice and the message from God coming through human writings mm -hmm in Hebrew or in Greek. 
And he also believed, we had a conversation about this, and so did Peter and John, that through their guidance and instructions to the early Jesus followers, that the Spirit of God was also speaking through them and what they were writing to the Jesus followers. So inspired is just referring to this conviction or confession Mm -hmm. that these writings in a unique way are the result of a human and divine partnership of human Mm -hmm. and God's Spirit, so that what these people wrote is what God wants his people to hear to lead them to the Messiah and to know what it means to be human in light of that. Mm -hmm. So inerrancy is actually a different term that addresses a whole different thing altogether. So it's interesting. Maybe it's because they both have the word in, Mm -hmm. the letters in (laughs) at the beginning that they get merged in people's minds. It's probably more more than that. Or And also because I think they're both trying to get at the question of the authority and truthfulness. Yeah, exactly. So inerrancy, it's, it's, it's a term that means, it's a Latin terms, means without error mm-hmm. or making no mistakes. So in uh, error, I think it's the Latin, two Latin roots. Okay. So it's an old idea in the Christian tradition, but it became, that rose into prominence just in the last 75 years or so um, in Europe and mostly in America in public debates that were being had about the authority and the truthfulness. When you're talking about, does it make an error or does it not make an error? We're talking about issues of truthfulness. Reliability. Uh, reliability. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Rel- to be truthful is to be reliable. It's okay. A different way of saying the same thing. So, what's funky about the term inerrant is it's a reverse way. It's a negative. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have errors. It's yeah. not errant. So you could just flip it over, and when you flip it over and think about this idea, then we come to where scripture itself develops vocabulary for it. Mm-hmm. That scripture is truthful. And so here, you did a word study video on this. Yeah, faithful, uh, emet, yeah. Yes, truthful. He- yeah, the Hebrew word emet or amen mm-hmm. is a Hebrew word that means reliable or trustworthy, but it's mm-hmm. a relational word. Mm-hmm. So um, when you say that someone is truthful, you know, what you're saying is what you're saying corresponds to fact. Mm-hmm. That's maybe how we might think of it. Right. Um, yeah, in a modern sense. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's yeah. right, in a modern sense like scientifically accurate, accurate. or precise yeah that's right yeah. that's kind of the associations of the word truth mm-hmm. but as you're pointing out in the video and in our discussions about that video amen it's it has to do with relationships and that someone is trustworthy to be who they say they are mm-hmm. and to do what they say they're going to do yeah and so uh th- that's the term used so there's the most famous lines are in psalm 119 the longest chapter in the bible mm. um uh, there's all these lines that some of them are famous King James line. Thy word is truth. The sum of thy words is truth. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. But it's the word emet or amen. Could also be translated, your word is reliable. It's trustworthy. Uh, but that raises the whole question of trustworthy to do what? Yeah. And in what way? And in what way? And, like how do you define an error if you're using That's exactly that right. idea? The inerrancy debates of the last half of the 20th century were um, mostly focused in on the historical truthfulness or the historical reliability of biblical narratives in particular. So inspiration and inerrancy got joined in kind of a a logical argument. Well, if God is truth, in his essence, God cannot lie or make an error, then God's word, whatever he says, will not lie and will be entirely truthful and will not make any errors. And so logically, you're like, yeah, that that makes sense. But there was an important moment in the late 70s where uh, a large number, I should know more about this if I'm going to bring it up in the podcast, (laughs) but uh, a large number of theologians, 
I think mostly from America, came together in Chicago mm -hmm. in 1978, I think it was, and drafted a kind of a was an attempt to be a unifying statement about these inerrancy debates. Yeah, you can look it up. It's the Chicago Statement yeah. on Inerrancy. Yeah, that's right. It's talking about these ideas, but there's one section of it that gets to this issue of historical truthfulness. And it's there's a lot buried into it. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was always interested in that one paragraph where it's talking about how to claim that the scripture is telling the truth, especially when it tells a story, doesn't mean that we should demand that the biblical authors write historiography the way modern modern westerners think of historiography and so that they use round numbers or symbolic numbers or that they might summarize or use artistic and stylistic conventions and how they tell a story yeah they can describe things from the eye of the author rather than from scientific uh fact yeah and so inerrancy shouldn't mean that we demand that the biblical authors correspond to our ways of writing, mm -hmm. writing literature. And to me, that was always a super important paragraph that I thought there should be, and there have been now, whole books on that. So, um, yeah, it's article 13 of the Chicago Whoa! statement. Thank you, Ray Lubeck. It's stuck <laughs> in my mind forever. <laughs> wow, way to bring that out. So um, in many ways, I'm not an expert on this. Oh, if you want, Zondervan, uh, publishers has a great, they have a, a whole series of books called Counterpoint mm -hmm. Series, where they'll give four views on this, five views on that. They have a book called Five Views on Biblical Inerrancy. Mm -hmm. And it's the whole spectrum. And they're all people who love and follow Jesus and who believe the scriptures are a divine human yeah. product. But they have different ways of framing up how you define inerrancy. And that diversity is important because you could, uh, on one spectrum, say every detail as stated verbally must correspond to a historical reality like you're watching video camera footage. Mm -hmm. And on the other end of the spectrum, you could say, well, the biblical authors had a different mode of writing historiography, and they use a lot of symbolism, stylistic, literary, and creative elements. And yet it can still claim to be a faithful, a truthful representation of the events. Yeah. And there's a whole diverse set of positions along those two spectrums. And um, Yeah, I think a book like that is really helpful, too, for understanding that the Christian tradition has room for a lot of different viewpoints. Yeah, but the baseline is that, um, that it's a truthful representation yeah. yep. of the story that it's telling. And when you say truthful, yeah. you don't mean precisely accurate in mm. how it would have happened in the time-space continuum. That is one way to imagine what truthful could mean. Mm -hmm. Another way to imagine that truthful could mean is that it is a truthful in that it's relaying something that happened and it's relaying a faithful interpretation about the meaning and significance of what, of yeah. what happened. So the meaning and significance is truthful, reliable, yeah. trustworthy. Yeah. And so, for example, I think it really matters that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth mm -hmm. who did and said these things, who was publicly executed, and that he was, his body was recreated, that he rose from the dead, and that the tomb was empty. Yeah. The meaning of those events was not self-evident to any of the people who watched them happen. It took them a long time, at least 40 days, and for some longer, to sort out the significance and the meaning of what happened. But uh, we had this debate about the, the phrase three days. Mm. He was in the tomb for three days. Was it Right? Three days and three nights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was it on the third day? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
because it was from Friday, right? From Friday, Friday afternoon to Sunday. Sunday morning, and you're debating about rotations of the sun. And, and that's a good example. And you're like, it's a shorthand phrase full of symbolic meaning mm -hmm. from the Hebrew Bible. And that's the kind of thing that we're after here, that we need to allow for a category of truthfulness, but that doesn't put a modern set of expectations of historiography on the biblical authors. And it's taken me a long time to settle myself into that. And so I, it was very disorienting for me when I first started trying to learn about all this. But So that's inspired and inerrant. Uh, Emily, you had another part of your question that we can talk about, but I was just I'm curious how that lands with either of you or if you have further thoughts on that. Well, I've got questions, but I don't know how many questions we want to get through. <laughs> yeah. Um, let, but let me ask this. It's really important. Like you said, it's really important that a man named Jesus who lived in yeah. the uh, Middle East yeah. lived and died. And mm -hmm. his, like, I love how you said that. His body was recreated. Mm -hmm. But the way that the narratives of Jesus's life mm -hmm. were crafted, you could argue they were stylized. Mm -hmm. Heavily. Yeah. The like mm -hmm. Yeah, there's four accounts and they're crafted yeah. differently. And there and there is a lot of people who try to bring harmony to mm -hmm. the gospels, mm -hmm. which seems like it's not letting the gospels do what the gospels are trying to do. Yeah. It's just another project, yeah. which is fine. So I guess okay, so my question is, how do you wrestle to the ground as you're reading a narrative? What are those things where to you it's really important that this Thing happened, or this person lived, or mm. that this event took place, mm. versus mm. I'm okay with the stylized version. Mm. And is it just that Jesus was recreated? Is that it? And then the rest mm. you can kind of hold loosely? Mm. Or is there other characters and other specific events that it's like that needed to have happened? Mm -hmm. Um and and then how do you and how do you decide what yeah, where yeah. to draw the line? Yeah. Well, I mean what we have received is um, an Israelite family history. Uh, and if I'm not an Israelite, then I'm grafted into that family through Israelite Messiah. So there's a spectrum of views on this. Personally, it matters to me that this isn't just a work of fiction, of creative fiction, with just a few connections to historical realities. And uh, even, you know, part we had um, Joshua Swamidas, yeah. a genetic scientist, on the podcast, part of why was because he was addressing the genealogies mm -hmm. and the notion of ancient genealogies and, and in a way that created a new category for me, especially about the, the historical reference of the genealogies going all the way back to these figures named Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, who would have existed in history before the Hebrew language even had the form to say the words Adam and Chava. Yeah. In other words, their names in the narrative are... Cla have, classical Hebrew names, names. <laughs> but couldn't <laughs> they wouldn't have the, referred to themselves that been way. their names because Hebrew didn't exist in that form yet. And so, so for me, it matters that there's a historical reference point for this family history going all the way back to to its beginning. But the way that that family history, as represented as a highly creative literary form, the way that it refers to what we would call historical events and people and so on. I've become more comfortable with the connection of, between the literary representation and whatever the historical reality is, that the biblical authors aren't giving us video camera footage. That's the best metaphor I know how to use. Yeah. Yeah. They have a family history that I think is anchored in history, mm -hmm. but the way that they're portraying it 
literarily is to help later generations understand the meaning. And they use literary creativity to do that. We do the same thing when we retell our family histories, yes, too. And yes. it's different because this is a different mm -hmm. uh, culture and way of writing. But I think we can relate that there's truth. It's a true story, but it's stylized. Yeah, heavily stylized. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's going to an extreme to say, well, if it's so literarily creative, then that means it's being just made up and it mm -hmm. didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Or it, well, it happened exactly as represented in every detail, including the literary creativity. And I... I just happen to think there's more there's more views possible mm -hmm. than those mm -hmm. two extremes. So we were just having this discussion about um, the age of certain characters in Genesis 1 through 11. Oh, right, yeah. And there's this pattern where at the ending of a literary unit in Genesis 1 through 11, you fi often find the number 770 or 777. Yeah, and a, as and, an age. As mm -hmm. an age. And so, you know, was so-and-so actually 777? Or was that a, a literary airbrushing to create the literary pattern for the reader to notice this development of the seventh day rest theme. And so I've become comfortable with airbrushing of details to make literary patterns work. But what it doesn't mean is that person never existed. <laughs> it means that a story is being told in a certain way to make a point. And that's the exciting part of literature that's artistic and stylized is that there's meaning communicated by, by that artistry yeah so i hear you saying you're you're comfortable with some airbrushing but, but how do you know they're not using a photoshop filter yeah. that creates an entire character hmm. that's well, not that's historical analogy yeah sure and even think about how the processes work this is, it actually gets into some of the questions that we're coming into about how oral traditions turned into written traditions and oral history and so on but once again this isn't about foisting an agenda onto the bible it's actually we're trying to do the reverse and we're just saying, what were the processes that God used by the work of the Spirit to produce this family history that leads to the Messiah? And I think we need to humble ourselves that the way that this family produced, retained, told its history, and shaped it could be really different mm -hmm. than how we would do it if it were happening today. Mm -hmm. And it's honoring that historical cultural difference. But I, yeah, I recognize that there's a lot of different views on this within the bigger stream of Christian orthodoxy throughout history. And that has always been the case. This isn't like novel. It's a very old conversation. Yeah, I think for me, an important question to ask is what is the author's or what, what are the author's intentions in portraying this act or event in this way? Mm -hmm. And what kind of literature is this that I'm reading? And what does mm -hmm. that mean? So mm -hmm. is when we read Genesis, is this history? Is it narrative? And what are the literary markers that Mm -hmm. Tell us that when we read the Gospels about Jesus and it's, what would you say the genre is? It's a um, mm. ancient biography. Yeah, biography is yeah. kind of the... Mm -hmm. So that's going to communicate in a certain way and communicate truth in a certain way that's different than maybe uh, the Proverbs yeah. that are communicating truth in these short sayings or then a parable that Jesus tells that's going to communicate truth in a different way. So I think genre, how literature communicates and how the, what the author's intentions are are really important for me to try to figure out why, uh, what things we should take in what ways. Yeah, that's, that's well said. Uh, yeah, and the, the trick is how do we know an author's intentions? And yeah. what we have to go off is cues in these actual scrolls. Yeah, or how later authors reflect. So when, yes, when yeah, Paul right. says to the Corinthians that if Christ was not raised, mm -hmm. then our faith is in vain, Yeah, he's saying... This is really important that we take this as historical yeah. fact. Yeah, I, I used to try and rank 
certain yeah. events in the Bible, it's like, well, that one's got to be truthful or else it all falls mm-hmm. apart. But this one, not so much. Um, there's a part of me that still wants to do that, mm-hmm. but there's a, I've become suspicious of that too in myself because all of a sudden it's like my very limited life experience and brain is trying to... Mm-hmm. It's uh, like then you're equating truth and history again instead yeah, of truth right. can be broader than just historical fact. Yeah. And none of us, like, this isn't stuff we can verify. Yeah. <laughs> it's a family history that's been passed down to us. It's not like we can go time travel and check. What we can do is when there's different accounts of the same events mm-hmm. in the Bible, which there are, we can compare them. And what you see is differences in details that point to a lot of this literary creativity. Well, don't people try to verify through archaeology? Oh, totally. And you can in a very rough and general way. Like, there was a Davidic kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> we verified that. Is that is pretty cool, though. <laughs> it's totally cool. The Tel Dan inscription yeah. is awesome. Yeah. And it references the house of David, and it's cool. Mm-hmm. But, like, that doesn't tell us anything about the literary portrayal of the house of David right. in the books mm-hmm. of Samuel. And, and how accurate those words yeah, are. Yeah, there's no rock you can dig up that's going to tell you about that. It can just tell you that there was a Davidic kingdom. I've heard people argue, though, that like like with the Exodus, that if that many people did, mm-hmm. you know, travel through the Sinai Peninsula, we would find something that would, sh- we would find something in the, sure. in the land, yep. in, sure. in archaeology. Sure. And so, I, there, so that's a good example. That narrative is a good place to see that there's a variety of positions. Mm-hmm where you can affirm that a historical event happened to the ancestors of Israel, but the way that it's portrayed in the narrative, uh, you could take a variety of positions on it, that the apocalyptic creation, decreation symbolism has been ratcheted up to 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that narrative, to communicate theological points, and th- that's a part of the presentation of the narrative, mm-hmm. and how that relates to historical events, well, there's, there's, I think there's some complexity there. But it doesn't mean that nothing happened. Mm-hmm. It's like asking, <laughs> yeah. in what way is this true, rather than imposing our viewpoint of truth. So, Emily, like I said, <laughs> you put your finger on the issue right there. And um, this is not one that's easily resolved. But I do think one can come to peace with a spectrum of positions that affirm the historical truthfulness of the Bible, but that don't force us to bulldoze or ignore the literary creativity of the biblical authors. I think one can have their cake and eat it too. (laughs) Uh, But it does just lead to there's just so much we don't know. Historical knowledge isn't like science. We can't repeat the events of the past and verify them. Mm -hmm. Archaeology and historiography are disciplines that can give us tools to think reasonably and critically, but it's not like an experiment that you can reproduce in a lab. Um, ultimately, there is a level of trusting the testimony of the biblical authors about these events and the meaning of these events. Mm. This was long. That was long. Yeah. It's and important, we, though. Yeah, it's totally. Good. We've got another question from Trey. Hello, I'm Trey from West Lafayette, Indiana. You mentioned that we know Jesus used the same canon we do because he refers to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms in Luke 24. Could you explain how we know that the Psalms refer to the entire third section of the Hebrew Scriptures? I would have expected him to say something like the law, the prophets, maybe the writings or the letters, if that's what he was referring to. Thank you so much for your podcast and all your videos. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. Great question. So a shortish answer um, is you're right. In Luke 24, uh, Jesus just mentions, there's two passages where he refers to the Hebrew Bible. He calls it the Torah and the prophets. 
in two terms, and then the Torah, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And what's interesting is that that Torah, Prophets, Psalms also corresponds to how the Bible nerds who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, so other Second Temple uh, Jewish communities at the same around the same time, uh, a little bit century before Jesus, also referred to the Hebrew Bible as the Torah, the Prophets, and David. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you also have other historians or Jewish writers like Philo and Josephus. And when they describe the three-part collection, they do use the Torah, the prophets, and the other writings. Yeah. They do use the other genre. books. Yeah. It seems like it was hard for people to categorize or name the writings yeah. right away. Yeah. So calling it the Ketuvim. Which means writing. As a shorthand, the writings for that third section of the Tanakh does seem like it was a crystallization or a a term that developed, it could have even developed post-Jesus, even though we know it was being used by some people in the time of Jesus. Another little clue is in Luke 11, mm-hmm. uh, Jesus is uh, he's announcing a prophetic oracle of doom over the towns of Israel that aren't accepting his vision of the kingdom of God because uh, he's convinced they're going to be destroyed by the Romans if they keep going the way they're going. And um, he talks about how the blood of all the prophets is going to be held accountable by this generation And he talks about the blood from Abel, Genesis 4, to the blood of Zechariah. And then he adds a little detail, (laughs) you know, the Zechariah who was killed in between the temple and the altar. Yeah, not Zechariah necessarily from the book of Zechariah. Yeah, different Zechariah. Yeah, a different one. Yeah, there were many Zechariahs in the Hebrew Bible. Common name. And so what's interesting is that Zechariah, that narrative that he's referring to, is near the end of the Chronicle scroll. And in uh, a very common Jewish ordering of the writings, uh, Chronicles is the conclusion of that third part of the collection. So what's interesting is Jesus names the beginning of mm-hmm. the writings, Psalms, and the concluding book of the writings. The beginning of the the Torah, this, Genesis right. for Abel. A- that's right. Yeah, for a- for Abel to Zechariah, yeah. it's, he's saying the whole Hebrew Bible, yeah. from the Torah to Chronicles. And mm-hmm. it's showing us the shape that he had. Yep, that's right. Because so, Chronicles comes last only in the Hebrew ordering. That's right. Of the Ketuvim. That's right. And actually, there were a variety in medieval manuscripts. There's a variety of orderings Mm -hmm. for the writings, that third section. But we know that one of them was beginning with Psalms and ending with Chronicles. And that seems to be, by these two mentions, that seems to be what Jesus has in his Mm -hmm. mind, too. And why would you use Psalms as a shorthand for the Mm -hmm. entire collection. Yeah. Um, it is the first book of the writings mm-hmm. and so, so, it's a really big book in the writings. Maybe just uh, as a synecdoche. So as a, what yeah. is that? A, me- a kind of a metaphor? Mm-hmm. Using part to describe the whole Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like I got new wheels, but you're talking about a car. Yeah. You, know, you use a part <laughs> to describe the whole. So I think it's that kind of thing. And actually that's what happens when the New Testament and Jesus use the phrase, the law and the prophets to describe <laughs> the whole of that's the right. The yeah. Hebrew Bible, or to say David for ancient Jewish writers to use David to describe even the whole book of Psalms or the writings. Yeah, that's right. It's using a part, one author mm-hmm. to describe the whole. David didn't write all the Psalms. Mm. So, do biblical authors use Torah to describe the whole Tanakh as a synecdoche? Yeah, I mean, when Jesus says, if you uh, listen to Moses, then you would also accept me, mm. I wonder if he's referring to the whole of the Hebrew Bible, or if he's just referring to the Torah. Yeah, there can definitely be a a part for the whole. There's a passage in John chapter 10 where Jesus quotes from the Psalms, but he says, isn't it written in the Torah? Mm. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Uh but he quotes from a Psalm. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't seem like the 
the terms to mm-hmm. refer to sections is as what do you say is as clear and categorized. Yeah, there was uh, a looseness and a variety of terms because mm-hmm. remember the word Torah means instruction. Yeah, and so yeah. that can become oh, yeah. a shorthand mm-hmm. for the entire of the Hebrew scriptures. And you me- you mentioned what Psalm one nineteen earlier, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's always referring to the Torah, the Torah, the Torah, right? Oh, it'll refer. That's one of the terms. Okay, it can, but also judgments and precepts and statutes okay. and your word and so on. Yeah. yeah. And whenever I studied that passage as a, as a young Christian growing up in the church, for us, mm. we were talking about the whole Bible. When you yeah. read Psalm 119, yeah, it's yeah, like how yeah. I love your yeah. teachings. Mm-hmm. Sure. We yeah. were thinking about from Genesis to Revelation. Right. Was the psalmist there thinking always specifically about the Torah? Were they thinking about the whole writing? Yeah, that's interesting. Like there's... Yeah, I, I think the whole collection. The whole collection. Yeah, because the Psalms scroll by the introduction, Psalm 1 and, and 2 together, and then the design of the book of Psalms, Psalm scroll, to have five macro parts mm-hmm. corresponding as a symmetry around the prophets matching the five scrolls on the other side, namely the Torah. So the, the Tanakh opens with the five-part Torah, and then the third part begins with a five-part Psalm scroll. Mm-hmm. To me, as a signal that the final shape of the Psalms is itself aware of the whole, mm-hmm. the whole collection. This question merges right into the next one from Cody in California. Hi, Tim, John, and Carissa. This is Cody from California. I am a long-standing, avid listener of the Bible Project podcast, and am truly loving this paradigm series. My question is this: Should we call the Bible the Word of God? Yes, there are hundreds of moments within the Bible where it says the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, or thus says the Lord, and so forth. But the Bible never actually calls itself the word of God. It even refers to Jesus as the word in the Gospel of John. And with so much human influence upon the writing and composition and arrangement of the literature that comprises our modern Bible, I'm curious about calling the whole thing from cover to cover the word of God. Is that right? All right. Thank you so much for all that you do. Cody, what a precisely worded question. Mm-hmm. So yeah, good. this is a fun question. It's yeah. it's making me look up uh, the Word of God and search it throughout mm-hmm. uh, the New Testament to see what it refers to. Yeah, yeah. I actually I did that yesterday yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah. to remind myself of it because I remember I remembered this, but I wanted to upload the facts. So you're right, Cody. The phrase "Word of God" in the Old and New Testaments primarily refers to either a narrative. When somebody's telling somebody either the, the message of about covenant faithfulness of the prophets, so the word of God comes to so-and-so. To Isaiah or something. The yep. word of God to Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So in the New Testament, uh, the phrase word of God or they spoke God's word is a shorthand for telling the story of Jesus mm-hmm. as Israel's Messiah who's crucified, raised from the dead, and the gift of the Spirit and so on. So in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas will arrive and they shared the word of God. Mm-hmm. Mm. But they're sharing a summary. But what they're sharing is a summary of the biblical story that leads to Jesus or the good news. Or the good news. Yeah, the good news about Jesus specifically. Yeah. And in Paul's letters, the same same thing tells the Thessalonians, you know, when we came and told you about Jesus, you received our word, not as a word from humans, but as a word from God. And then Jesus is, you know, called the word in the Gospel of John, as you know, Cody. And the other writings of John too. Yeah. John and Revelation. Yep. So... The Word of God is shorthand for the good news announcement that tells the whole biblical story as a story leading to Israel's Messiah, namely Jesus. There are a couple uses, however, um, where I think 
the idea of calling all of the scriptures by this phrase, the word of God, developed from. So for example, in the letter to the Hebrews, the pastor has this whole discussion, long discussion about Psalm 95 as giving God's word to the community that he's writing to, wherever they were living. And there's a point in Hebrews chapter four where the pastor just calls Psalm 95, he just says, he calls it the word of God. Hmm. Those to whom the word of God comes, which is the people I'm writing to. So there, a psalm mm, that's is the word of God. And what's interesting is earlier in Hebrews chapter one and two, he's quoting from the Psalms and there he calls the Psalms just David. Mm. He, he says, as it says in David, mm. and then he quotes. Mm -hmm. so, oh, that's a good example from our last question. Yes. So David can stand for the whole Psalm scroll, mm -hmm. even though he's only named in the Masoretic Hebrew text yeah. in 73 of the, of the poems. But then two chapters later, he can call a Psalm, not David, but the word of God. So the biblical authors don't have a conception where if it's connected to one of the human authors, it's less divine or we shouldn't call it the word of God. They just operate with this paradigm that God's word uniquely was communicated through these texts written by these humans. So you're right in name, noting that calling it the word of God is a, it's a step that doesn't quite happen in the scriptures themselves, but you can see where the logic's going and where it, where it comes from. Yeah, in the same way that Psalm 95 is the word of God, then every psalm is a word of God. Yeah, that's right. And then yeah. if, the, if the psalms are a word of God, then why not the other writings in the Bible also be the word of God? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To the point where yeah. the Bible is the word of God. Yeah, the phrase word of God, though, feels like it's become a little bit abstract. Is that the right? Or it's just, it's become Christianese to where I'm not even quite sure what it means but it it gives the impression of dictation straight mm, from god yeah yeah so right. i think and for that reason i would prefer to call it scripture mm -hmm. and the word of god it seems like the way the authors are using it is is more to talk about the message or yeah. the story of scripture yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm kind of in a similar place i i've come to prefer using the biblical terminology more of just the scriptures mm -hmm. or the writings and even the oh because the word the bible doesn't occur in the bible <laughs> yeah, right. Scripture, yeah. writing, mm -hmm. um, but the word Bible, the Greek word biblos means scroll. And it was never all on one scroll. Right. It was in a collection of scrolls and then much later in a codex post-Jesus. So even though we've called this the Bible project, <laughs> it would be weird to call it the Bible's project or the scrolls project, but- The scripture project. Yeah, so, but I, I resonate with what you're saying, Krista. I think the word of God in our cultural context can actually miscommunicate this important biblical paradigm of it being a product of the human and divine partnership. Yeah, which I think is exactly what Cody was yeah. bringing out, that it is, there mm. is human involvement, human partnership. At the same time, the benefit of calling it the word of God is that it truly is a divine, uh, divine anthology of scrolls also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. It, the human and divine aspects don't, there's it's not a zero sum game. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not one, at least the, Classic confession, orthodox confession, is that it's both at the same time and the one doesn't minimize or compromise the other, which is a hard balance to strike in our imaginations, I think, because we tend to think that if it's one, then it somehow minimizes the other. But. So in the examples where um, the prophet hears from God and then delivers a word, that seems like potentially transcribed in a way. It's kind of like, this is the thing mm -hmm. I heard. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you the thing I heard. Totally. Yep. When Paul goes and tells the good news to a new community, he is using his 
creativity yeah. to summarize yep. what happened and why it mattered. But then his use of creativity and his summarization is called the word of God. So it's like mm-hmm. you kind of got both usages mm-hmm. there yeah. in the Bible itself. Yep. But I agree with you, Carissa, that I think what we typically think of when we say word of God mm. in a modern setting is mm. more of this transcribed, like God said it in this very specific mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And then we just wrote it down um, without using our creativity. Yeah. The phrase can underemphasize the, the human element of the Bible to, yeah, to agree that I, I think is not just that it's not necessary to minimize the human involvement, but I think it can have negative effects over the long term. Namely, setting people up to think that the Bible is more divine than human. And then when they're exposed to the human history of the mm-hmm. Bible, it becomes scandalous mm-hmm. when I, I don't think it needs to be. So there's an mm-hmm. argument for calling it the word of God, but allowing the idea of what a word from God is yeah. to be more of a collaborative mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. partnership yeah, that's and, right. and about the the message about the Messiah, the story about the Messiah. Yeah. And it's important to remember the apostles never had a council where they drew up a theological dictionary <laughs> yeah. of their terms. They used a variety of terms to describe lots of ideas depending on the context that they were in. And for me, the, the most interesting example was always that the primary title Jesus used to call himself was the son of Adam, hmm. the son of humanity. But um, the apostles in their writings never call him that. Hmm. They yeah, call that him Messiah or son of God, which were the very titles that Jesus explicitly tried to avoid mm-hmm. using in public. <laughs> yeah. But both are true, yeah. but just based on their different contexts, yeah. in the moments in history, different vocabulary served different purposes. And so in the same way, how we refer to the scriptures, I think, uh, can vary depending on cultural context. We've got a question from Heather in Maryland. Hi, Tim, John, and Carissa. My name is Heather Morton, and I live in Chevrolet, Maryland. My question has to do with the second temple literature that influenced Jesus and his early followers. Were Protestants mistaken to remove these books from the scriptures? Do you think our relationship with God or our biblical understanding is diminished by not having them in our Bibles? Thanks so much for this series. I'm finding it really helpful. Yeah, great question. Yeah, really good question. Yeah. So maybe one place to start is is a clarification. So this broader set of texts from the Second Temple period were widely disseminated uh, in Greek translation, along with the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So this is after the the writings of the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, 39 books. It's, it's the same yeah. uh, books that are in a Protestant Old Testament, just yeah. with a little bit different numbering. That's right. Or it's 39 by the Protestant division and then 24. Okay, thanks. Yep, in the Hebrew Bible. So yeah, after right. that after that and before well, the New Testament. But what's writing. interesting is the after and before. These were all there was a collection of scrolls. Mm-hmm. So like since you didn't bind all the scrolls together in one collection, this idea of w- what the collection is, where the boundaries of the collection are, that felt maybe More a little blurry. loose and yeah. blurry, well, right? Because uh, there was certainly certain... there was opportunity for it to be blurry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't ever bound yeah. by two covers in a, in a codex in, in that early Second Temple period. Right. However, I do think you can pay attention to the structural clues of the Tanakh, and we, which we were paying attention to earlier about the, the Psalms. As the third section begins with a five-part scroll, the Psalms matching the five-part Torah at the beginning of the collection. Chronicles is a retelling from Adam to the exile and the return from exile. So it's very much a concluding type of story. 
So I do think there's intelligent life in the design and collection of the Tanakh. However, did all Jewish communities perceive that? Mm -hmm. um, one. And then two, were there some Jewish communities that also revered other texts mm -hmm. of more recent origin that they didn't conceive of as part of the Tanakh or they thought the boundaries were blurry and so they held other texts as having a div divine human origin? And we know the answer to that question is yes. Mm -hmm. And whether it's the Messianic community Jude belonged to for Enoch was very clearly revered. He wouldn't quote it otherwise. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the, the Dead Sea Scroll community, uh, there was a scroll called the Temple Scroll that's an amalgamation of all of the apocalyptic temple visions mm. in the Hebrew Bible to talk about a temple that is yet to come. And they accepted it as a, as a word of prophecy about the restoration of a new temple uh, when the Messiah comes. And they held it in very high regard. Mm -hmm. So the trick is, is right from the beginning of the Jesus movement, there were a variety of communities because it was never centralized after it scattered out of Jerusalem. And there were communities, and you can trace their history into the second, third, fourth century that held a more blurry, wider collection of Greek scriptural writings. But there were always voices, too, that said, no, but the Jewish communities always held this particular section, the Tanakh, to be a unique uh, divine human word that's different from all the others. And Jesus and most of the apostles seem on that train because they use unique vocabulary when they quote from the Tanakh that's different from when they will borrow language from some of these other writings. So I'm compelled that there was an entity called the Tanakh. That's <laughs> the 24 scrolls. But that doesn't mean that every Jewish community recognized that as a firm boundary line and that even some of the early Messianic communities, this has been an issue of, issue of debate. And so in the medieval uh, or early medieval codexes, codices of the Greek translation of the Bible that were produced by Christians, these all have both the Greek translation of the Tanakh and other Second Temple writings in them and the New Testament writings. And so when the English Bible started to be produced, the earliest Geneva Bible, um, the earliest King James Bibles had this wider Second Temple literature in it. Mm. And it was the Catholic-Protestant debates that led to the production of Bibles that put these books separate as an appendix. It was happening in the first decades after the printing press and mm. then... As the centuries went on, uh, they were just removed altogether from Protestant Bibles. So it's important to say when Protestants removed them, in one sense that's true, <laughs> but in another sense, they were just recognizing something that some Christians had always thought, namely that the Tanakh is a very unique revelation of God's word to his people that's different from these other books. Uh, I'm sorry, I just talked for a long time. But Maybe the biggest takeaway from this is it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's not it's not simple. And this used to bother me for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it really bothered me for well, a long so time. Well, so it's yeah. complicated to try to put your finger on exactly what should be considered scripture or not. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's complicated because going back to the origins of the Jesus movement, there have been differences yeah. of opinion. But the differences don't mean that there's no such thing called the Tanakh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's about these other texts that were revered alongside the Tanakh in some early Jesus communities. And that has yeah. been yeah, so the these, case from the beginning. These are the books like uh, Judith, Wisdom, Maccabees. They were revered by the Jewish community and later communities. Mm -hmm. And to yeah. go back to Heather's question, they are useful 
and super helpful for even if even for Protestants, mm. they're helpful for yes. context, for theology, for yeah. early interpretation of scripture, for all of those things. So even if Protestants say this isn't part of what we'd consider scripture or authentic scripture, they're still very useful. Yeah. I think that's important. But it is a genuine difference in the Christian tradition. Yeah. And the trick is there's no one form of these extra writings. There's a yeah. traditional Catholic Bibles, there's called the Deuterocanon. But in um, most forms of the Orthodox tradition, there's a couple more, yeah. <laughs> including Jubilees. And in one strand, and in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, there's a couple more, Enoch and Jubilees. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in each of those expanding traditions, it's saying in these books, we hear a word from God by which we evaluate and measure claims about the will and purpose of God in the world. So to, the, that's what the word canon means. It's a Greek word that means a measuring line or an eval evaluating line. And so the confession has been that the canon of scripture guides God's people to measure what we can say reflects the will and purpose of God. Hmm. And so the trick is, is what collection is the measure? And uh, there's not a lot in these books that like is really out of the ballpark completely, you know, hmm. in, in the uh, Deuterocanon or extra books. It's like, whoa, that's coming out of left field. Hmm. Like, most of it is just developing what's in the Tanakh in the first place in terms of ideas. But there are some parts that became matters of debate between Catholics and Protestants, and that's what led to this divide. I think when we're asking the question, are they scripture, some things that are helpful to consider are the shape of the Tanakh. Mm -hmm. So the the seams of the Tanakh that are seem really intentional, like the beginning of, of the, his, the prophets, Joshua 1, mm -hmm. the beginning of the writings, the end of the Torah, the prophets and the writings all pointing to this leader yeah. to come. Um, and then when you hear the New Testament authors reflect on the Hebrew Bible, they do refer to a three-part mm -hmm. collection, not a four-part collection. Yeah. So we yeah. have to consider that. I'd be curious to know how people who um, include the Deuterocanon as part of the Bible, how they see that fitting within the literary story um, as far as its macro design. Yeah. You know, it, does yeah. it have those same kinds of features and seams or is it different hmm. qualitatively? Yeah. A good example of that is uh, like like Judas or mm -hmm. Tobit. Mm -hmm. It's just they're so awesome. It reads like it's written by people who know the Tanakh so well mm -hmm. and they're just working the design patterns. Judith is all about the main character, Judith, which it's the Hebrew word for Jewish woman. And she's the snake crusher. She's mm -hmm. the seed. It's a woman who's the seed of the woman depicted as uh, a portrait of the coming snake crusher. And the snake crusher, the snake is an amalgamation of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. <laughs> mm. They're like the three big bad empires in the Bible. So you're like, oh man, that's just working the same themes. Mm -hmm. But you read Maccabees and Maccabees reads like a propaganda document for the Maccabean uh, regime that came in re in revolt in the 160s, and it's you're like whoa this is this is a different pool I'm swimming in right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So there is there are differences mm -hmm. even within the Deuterocanon of what the text agendas are and what what they're about, and it's all illuminating to help us understand the wider cultural context into which Jesus was born and into which the apostles you know are, are writing and doing their thing. Mm -hmm. But it's a genuine difference. And as much as I've worked on these questions, 
I kind of reached this point where I don't know what else to do except to say, yeah, this is the genuine difference between the Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox traditions. But there's so much to be unified about in terms of the main content of all this literature and the main themes and leading to the Messiah that, yeah, there you go. For me, the unity of all across the mm -hmm. traditions is what's much more striking than the differences, mm -hmm. but I know other people feel differently. So. Okay, let's take another question. Uh, this is from Willie. Hi, Tim and John. My name is Willie Bustinza. I am originally from Peru, but currently reside in Florida. As you are talking about the formation of the Old Testament, I wanted to get your thoughts on the JEDP, Critical Theory of Torah Composition. To me, the arbitrary picking of the names of God to ascertain the origins of a document is too far-fetched. But do you think there is any validity to that theory, given that we understand the Bible was made from many sources? If so, how do we uphold the inspiration of the Bible and Moses' role in the composition of the Torah, as this theory has been used by many to diminish the divine authority of the Bible? Thanks for everything you do. This guy's yeah. taking a taxi cannon class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is a question about the sources behind the, the Pentateuch or the Torah mm -hmm. and what that means for the authority of it as a text and whether it's necessary to affirm that Moses was the author of the Torah for it to have mm. authority. Mm. Or the author of all the material yeah. in the form that we have it today. Right. Yeah. And then he refers to... One particular theory. One yeah. particular theory so called JEDP. has been really influential. Yeah, JEDP. So maybe let's take it back yeah. to um, Willie just anchoring it in some earlier parts of the, the pillars of the paradigm in our conversation. So to say that a biblical author used many sources to make a biblical book, mm -hmm. there shouldn't be anything controversial about that. That's how scrolls were produced in the ancient world. Yeah, as long as we see the writing process as this act of revelation from God yeah. in that yeah. time, as opposed to just the event or one inspired author. Mm -hmm. It's the actual yeah. writing of the text. So an author, a later author who adds to it, an editor who shapes it, mm -hmm. all of those processes are part of uh, shaping God's word through his spirit. Yeah. Even if one does hold to a Moses authorship of all of the Pentateuch in its final form, you have to take on board that Moses received source material for all of the stuff that came before him because he only appears in the second book of the Torah. <laughs> he wasn't alive for everything that came before him. So he has to have had sources for that. Mm -hmm. And you have to know that someone came in after and added at least a few things. Mm -hmm. Totally. Like, like the story of his death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he died. But also other things like in the story of Abraham and Isaac, binding of Isaac, there's a little detail in there that's an allusion from an author, a narrator, who's standing centuries after Moses because he's referring to Jerusalem yeah. <laughs> as the place where uh, Yahweh will provide or be seen by his people. There's lots of little things like that throughout the Torah that show a perspective from a later Israelite history. So we don't have to limit inspiration to the named authors. Yeah. Even within the Bible itself, there is references to a tradition of scribes and prophets alongside or coming after. So Isaiah refers to his disciples. Mm -hmm. um, in the book of Proverbs, uh, there's a whole section that says, these are the words of Solomon that the men of Hezekiah assembled. Mm. And that's like centuries after Solomon. Mm -hmm. So the biblical authors aren't trying to hide. The, it, they're composed of many sources. So there's this one particular theory you're referring to, Willie, called JEDP. This is a fascinating rabbit hole <laughs> in the history of biblical studies. 
I'll try not to <laughs> go on for too long because I've, I've been really interested in this. So a discussion about the source material of the Torah in particular, it goes, it's very ancient. It's a very ancient conversation. But in, um, in Germany, in the 1800s, it took on a particular um, focus. The scholars who are really the engine behind what became known as the Documentary Hypothesis, or JEDP, are a number of scholars, Karl Buda, oh, somebody Graf, Graf. Graf, and then Wellhausen, Wellhausen. Julius Wellhausen. Yeah. And for them, it was both about using divine names as a way to peel apart the sources and try and reverse engineer the Torah. But it wasn't just that. Um, it was a whole model of reconstructing the history of Israelite religion. That's what they were really after. And they had a, this concept that the Israelite religion developed from key male individuals who were inspired by the prophetic genius of God's spirit that encountered God and led the people. And then what happened throughout Israelite history was a degrading of that into a form of legalistic religion. And so they align the sources, J-E-D-P, in this order from like poetic, prophetic, inspirational, down to legalism and Phariseeism. Oh, okay. And so the last source, P, um, is most of the ritual stuff in Leviticus and so on. And so in that whole model is a deeply anti-Semitic agenda and a deeply unhistorical understanding of the history of Israelite religion. And, and an agenda. Oh, and very much an agenda. Yeah. Yeah. That fits into what was happening in Germany oh, yeah. in the 1800s. So it's not just about trying to identify sources. N no, it was driven by a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. And so the history of Pentateuchal or Torah composition history, the scholarly debates about that have continued to rage. And even though JEDP has a particular hold in certain universities in America, most of European biblical scholarship has moved on to other models for mm -hmm. the composition of the Torah. So there is a real interest in what is the source material? Oh, yeah. How might you yeah. be able to find that there might have been different maybe communities of material that were brought together or yeah. whatever? And you can see it when you read in Hebrew and really begin to, to go in detail into these texts. You can often see the literary themes of where a yeah. section ended and where a new source was spliced mm -hmm. together. You can see the handiwork of it. It's cool. Mm -hmm. Right. It's cool to see. And that's part of the shaping of that's right. the overall story. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it was shaped from sources doesn't mean that it's less mm -hmm. inspired, if we mean by inspired, a divine and human partnership. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually one of the most compelling arguments to me for this divine hand at work in the text, that mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. written and shaped by a variety of different authors. Yeah. I mean, more than 50 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> different authors and editors, and yet it is a unified work. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine trying to do that over so much time today with so many different authors trying to write a religious, political, mm -hmm. historical document? Yeah. And still have it be unified? Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's remarkable. So uh, if you're interested, Willie, there are very expensive scholarly volumes that will get you up to date on the debates about the composition of the Torah in particular. So Thomas Dozman or Matthias Armgart edited really recent volumes about scholarly conferences on these things. So we'll put links in the show notes. But uh, it's a conversation that keeps evolving because what we're doing is trying to reverse engineer the content of an ancient scroll. And it's, it's, a guess, it's an informed guessing game at many points. And so the theories keep developing, 
But no matter what theory you adopt, it shouldn't, I think, cause us to question the, the category of it being divine and human, if that's a confession that you hold. Yeah. All right, let's do a question from Finley. Hi, Bible Project. I'm Finley from London, England. The churches I've been part of use the Bible to give life lessons. So the story of David is used to tell us how we can rely on God to overcome our challenges, whilst Moses is taken as a lesson in using the gifts God has given you, despite your limitations, to make a difference in your world. This approach seems to be the norm in church preaching, but it's not about the Messiah. Is this the wrong way to go about reading and applying scripture, or is the legitimate space for it? Thank you. Yeah, this seems like a really common experience, probably. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because I think what we have said up till now is that wasn't the purpose of the stories. Was yeah. to to give you it's a less helpful approach. It's a less helpful <laughs> approach. That the story of David, we talked about this. Mm. David mm -hmm. slaying Goliath. I've heard many sermons of taking that to be like, what are the giants in your life, mm -hmm. and what are the five smooth stones that you need to find, and mm -hmm. you know, and um, that uh, will miss what the story is designed to do. However, the Bible then is wisdom literature. Yes, totally, and. That when then you reflect and meditate on the story and what it's doing, then it will actually give you wisdom for how to live your life yeah. and develop your own character and slay your giants. You know, <laughs> like that is true. So I think there is something there, but but maybe we're just missing the the first beat mm. of that progression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this goes back to the Bible as messianic literature, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. as part of our paradigm. That's how we address this issue. So. Jesus, if we take seriously that Jesus and the apostles say, what is the Hebrew Bible about? It's a story about the Messiah that leads to the Messiah who enters into death, goes out the other side so that new creation can be released to the nations. So that's what they say it's about. So whatever lessons it has to offer me, it's seeing how the story of David and Goliath fits in to the larger themes of the Hebrew Bible as being leading to the Messiah. And then once it's about the Messiah, then it becomes about us. Mm -hmm. Because we are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the body of the Messiah. And so it's as messianic literature that it offers wisdom to me. And I think that's important because who, who does one identify as the giant? What's the giant? <laughs> so in the story of David and Goliath, the giant, the Goliath is if you've been tracking with the narrative patterns from Genesis, um, Goliath is a narrative image that is bringing together a whole collection of bad bad guys and forces throughout the story, beginning with the snake. Mm -hmm. Because his armor is snake-like sna and bronzy, which is the same word. Yeah, that's right. But that, that would only be convincing to you if you've been tracing mm -hmm. the narrative patterning of the mm -hmm. snake throughout the Torah and the prophets and the giants. leading up to that point, which is also then the Nephilim and the giants mm -hmm. and the great warriors of old are also in the narrative argument of Genesis 1 to 11 are connected to the, to the snake, to the archetype of the snake. And so once you have reptiles and giants, <laughs> and that's a pattern that keeps repeating in all kinds of stories yeah. right through uh, the Torah and prophets, when you get to the David and Goliath story, uh, he, he's facing off against the seed of the snake. Mm -hmm. It's a story about the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. So what is the messianic reading of that then? Yeah. A non-messianic reading is, well, so you reader or listener are like David, and who's your Goliath? Yeah. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's creating this portrait of spiritual evil 
that hijacks human communities and nations and institutions represented by their violent warrior leaders. Yeah. And so to me, it's crucial that we read this in light of its messianic fulfillment because mm -hmm. Jesus was facing his Goliath in the form of the Roman and Jerusalem power regimes. But crucially, he did not chop up their heads. Mm. <laughs> in fact, for him, he wouldn't be faithful to his calling as the Messiah if he did chop off their heads. The whole point was that he let them chop off his head, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And if you don't read the David and Goliath story through that messianic mm -hmm. lens, then you the get the way. opposite wisdom from it that you're supposed to get. Interesting. And so when you get to Paul, who says, you know, our enemy, in Ephesians says our enemy of a follower of Jesus is never another human. Yeah. It's the principalities and powers that are behind everything we see around us. And that's our enemy. And if you have a sword, it's the good news. <laughs> mm. uh, and you stand against it. You don't go on the offensive. So that's a messianic reading of the David story. But when you don't read the Bible as a story leading to the Messiah, I think you end up with the wrong life lessons. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe some good ones. Oh, well, that's true. You can still use that methodology and come with wisdom that then if you go, well, let's make sure we first read this through the lens of this is messianic literature. Yeah. You might be like, mm -hmm. okay, cool. We yep. could actually affirm That's right. some mm -hmm. of that wisdom. Mm -hmm. But um, the fact that the giants in our lives are sp spiritual powers, you know, you can, you could, you could get there and if you're not reading it through a messianic lens, you still might be like, what are the things in my life? And you realize that there's powers and principalities in your life that you need mm -hmm. to fight against. But I like how you brought that up, Tim, that um, how you do it becomes very important yeah. and is easy to miss if you just mm -hmm. focus on the story of yep. David and don't read it through the lens of yeah. Jesus. Yep. So let's do one last question, and it is from Carrie. Hi, Tim and John. This is Carrie from Phoenix, Arizona. My question is, how would you help somebody who has no interest in reading the Bible after being in a church or a tradition where the Bible was weaponized against them and used to harm them? How would you invite them to see the Bible as a source of good and flourishing? Thank you so much. Such a huge fan of the podcast. Mm. Such a good, honest mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. And an important question. Yeah, really important. Yep. I think this is a lot of people's experience, whether it's from a spiritual tradition that they come from that was abusive in this way or some other form of abuse or trauma that is going to affect the way we view life. And when we come to the Bible, it's not an easy text to read. It can be really triggery. Yeah. It's already a challenging text yeah. to read and engage it's, with. Yeah. It's full of a lot of dark things. Yeah. And then add the, add this type of experience yeah. that can write itself into our body. <laughs> yeah. In terms of our body begins to be triggered by responses to the Bible because of trauma, right? This is what trauma totally. does, right? Yeah. As I understand it. And so it's much more difficult than just saying, well, here's some new ideas to approach the Bible with. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not about ideas. Mm. It's also about your body has been shaped in such a mm. way that it goes into fight and flight when certain issues and circumstances come up. So it's it's a very important question. It's not something I, that we can answer for someone else because it's going to be so different for every person, you know. Mm -hmm. One idea is that because um, that type of harm happens in faith communities by other people in faith communities, 
um, that most likely the way forward is not going to be by just a new idea of reading the Bible, but it's going to probably happen through relationships um, in a community of relationships where some followers of Jesus are living and organizing their common life in a way that is healing and that's, uh, that feels safe and compelling and beautiful. And to see that community life around Jesus happening and then to see like, oh, wow, the Bible plays an important role in why these people are living the way that they're living. I think that can, in, in other words, it's not just going to be about the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's most likely going to be about finding a community that's living out the biblical story mm. in a way that can bring healing. It's hard for me to imagine another way forward for someone yeah. who's in that situation. And that's it's just a tough place to be. Well, I think an assumption in the question is that this person um, maybe wants to follow Jesus still. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. You know, right. like, but yeah. there seems to be some sense of like, um, I'm still, I'm still in this. I want um, with Jesus. Yeah. And if that's the case, then perhaps I don't know. And you're right, Tim. That like, there's every situation is going to be different. But perhaps there is something in just let's just go and read the teachings of Jesus, mm -hmm. or let's just read stories of Jesus, mm -hmm. and then let the Bible begin to unfold from there mm -hmm. slowly, or just talk about the stories mm -hmm. of Jesus mm -hmm. and not have to like go and, and read the actual text. Cause maybe there are, maybe the weaponization was a very specific phrasing of something Jesus said, and then was twisted mm -hmm. and turned into something that was abusive. Yeah. Perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But how can you still center it on Jesus and then let God through time and community and safe relationships begin to pull back those things so that your body can begin to interact with with these with these words again mm -hmm. in a way that isn't mm -hmm. triggering mm -hmm. yeah yeah in my experience i mean i haven't experienced spiritual abuse or spiritual trauma but i have experienced other kinds of traumas and that has affected the way that it feels to read the bible and i remember mm. i remember the first time after um i experienced a trauma four years ago of having this painful sudden divorce and being finding myself with a tiny new infant and feeling like I really needed um, God's care and that I needed to know that he was stable and steady for me. And I remember reading the book of Genesis for the first time after that. And I got to the story of Hagar and I was like, I can't read this. I just don't want to read this. And I can't because it felt triggery and unstable and uncaring. And I think, um, yeah, I think from my experience, just having the self-compassion to be like, I think God understands that hmm. and he cares and he doesn't need me to like push through hmm. to be a, a good Bible scholar and read my Bible like this. Like if I'm, if I need to just connect with him, however I can receive his love, whether it's through community, whether it's through like hmm. um, prayer, whether it's through feeling the grief and just crying and feeling the refuge that God provides, um, I think he understands that and it totally makes sense that when we go through mm. hard things, we're going to feel it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think self-compassion and um, and also, you know, we're not supposed to read these stories as robots or as... Um, Brains on a stick. Yeah, just, yeah. you know, I think actually before maybe I was able to read the story of Hagar and ask 
mostly cognitive questions about it. Be emotionally detached. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I can't do that anymore. But I think that's a benefit when we are feeling grief is that we can be more holistic readers. So at whatever point somebody can engage with this text, it's like the Bible should actually bring us grief a lot of the time Mm -hmm. if we really are in touch with human evil and pain. But I don't think we should push into that if it's Mm -hmm. causing us to be triggered, Mm -hmm. you know? That's wise. That's really, that's well said. It it makes me think about um, how the biblical collection is full of so many different parts and uh, it's okay if some parts are more difficult and you don't hang out there as much. Yeah. Because there might be another season of life where you see it differently. And to me, that's one of the great gifts of such a diverse collection <laughs> uh, yeah. that is the Bible. Is um, If Genesis is triggering, hang out in the Psalms. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if, you know, if the Book of Kings is like really bothering you, then, you know, go. But also... Sometimes it's worth moving towards the things that bother us. Mm -hmm. And the biblical collection can help us in that journey of growth Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thank you for sharing, Mm -hmm. Krista. And thank you, Carrie, for that really, really good question. Um, There's always, always more to discover. On that note. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So we're going to do one more question response at the end of this series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got more. We've got more. Um, (laughs) And the next one actually is uh, wisdom literature, Mm -hmm. which which was alluded to. And uh, then we'll get through the seven and we'll do one more question response. So feel free to continue to send in your questions. And we we love to hear them. And uh, thank you, Tim and Krista, for interacting with those. And And uh, John. And thank you, John. (laughs) You interacted too. Yeah. Next week, we jump back into the series and look at the Bible as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. Okay. What do we mean? So first, let's just recognize wisdom literature is often in biblical studies, a title that refers to a handful of books within the Bible, not the whole thing. What we mean by this is a little bit different. So wisdom literature. So here's our shorthand sentence that we've written to summarize this. All of the diverse literary styles in the Bible reveal God's wisdom and invite us into a journey of character transformation. This episode was produced by Cooper Peltz. Our editors are Dan Gummel and Zach McKinley. And the show notes are done by Lindsay Ponder. Bible Project is a nonprofit and we exist to experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Everything we make is free because of the generous support of many people all over the world. So thank you so much for being a part of this with us. Hi, this is Deborah, and I'm from Jakarta, Indonesia. Hi, this is Matthew, and I'm from Maslin, Ohio. I first heard about the Bible Project when I was intentionally searching about Book of Esther. I used Bible Project for studying the Bible because it will give you insight about historical background, how to read your Bible, meaning of special words, and many more things. I first heard about Bible Project through student ministries at my church. I use Bible Project for learning more about the Bible and teaching the Bible in my small group at college. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, classes, and more at BibleProject.com.